we often talk about how theology uh, or doctrine affects life and behavior, mm-hmm. but we also need to remember that behavior and life and morality affects doctrine. Uh, the, the road goes mm-hmm. both directions. Welcome, everyone, to Reclamation Podcast, a Be Emboldened initiative. If you are new to us, I am Naomi. I'm the founder and executive director of BE, and we exist for those who have been impacted by spiritual abuse. We are committed to providing support for the prevention of victimization and re-victimization, creating a safe space to ask questions, to heal, and to rebuild. You can learn more about the resources we offer and our support services by visiting BeEmboldened.com. For today's conversation, I am honored to welcome Dr. Michael Kruger to talk about his most recent book, Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Dr. Kruger is president and the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is one of the leading scholars today in the study of the origins of the New Testament and the author of numerous books, including Surviving Religion 101, Hebrews for You, Christianity at the Crossroads, How the Second Century Shaped the Future of the Church, and of course, the book we're basing our conversation on today. So with that, Dr. Kruger, welcome. And again, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Naomi. It's great to be with you and looking forward to this chat. Wonderful. So I'm going to jump right in with question number one. Sure. Based on the responses of some pastors and their congregants, they imply or sometimes directly state that spiritual abuse is a new phenomenon and therefore needs to be called into question. Some have gone as far as to say that spiritual abuse is unfounded and therefore invalid. And I'm curious, what is your response to this position? Yeah, well, actually, you know, my book that you mentioned, Bully Pulpit, I spent a lot of time on this exact question. Mm -hmm. I think there is this perception out there that um, this is a new idea or that it's a modern concoction or that this is the the result of sort of a modern sort of psychological or therapeutic culture that's looking for labels for things. And certainly it is true that the terminology spiritual abuse is new. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and in fact, I think we're really at the front end of understanding the term and, and, and how to use it. But the concept's not new. And I go quite extensively in my book to argue that, look, the concept is just when someone's in a position of authority, they can rule those under them harshly and in a domineering manner. That happens in the secular world, but it happens also in the church. And there's tons of examples in the Bible of that exact thing happening. And also many examples of Jesus and the disciples warning us uh, about those types of behaviors and then reminding us that those who are called to Christian ministry have to be very much uh, uh, not those type of people. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the term is, is maybe new and, and I understand how confusing it can be and, and, and people can, can balk at that, but the concept is richly built into the scriptures. And I, I go into great lengths to show that in my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it was incredibly helpful to be able to read that more in detail. So for everyone listening or watching, please do. Uh, it's going to really better equip you to have conversations about this topic. Because again, they definitely do come up. I certainly come up against them. And I see different responses to this topic. Sometimes I see people who seem kind of fearful, like, are you out to get us? And so I like to clarify that, no, you know, we love the church and we support the church. We, you know, need to support everyone who's a part of the church, though. We need to make sure that we're taking a proper stance in relation to harm that is caused, of course. And so 
It can be yeah, tough. Uh, let me, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, let me add to that. Cause I think you're right. Um, we, we always want to make sure people know that when we bring these issues up, we do it out of love for the church and mm-hmm. a love for God's people and a desire to see the church more like Christ. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because I think part of what the church needs is for the church leaders themselves to say that it's one thing for those who've received the abusive behavior to say that. And it, and, and then the mm-hmm. pastors feel all nervous that you're out to get us, but at least in this book, I can say I'm a pastor too, right? I'm a leader too. So I, I'm saying this as one who's in those positions. And I think we need to pay better attention to the type of leaders we're promoting. Um, and so I think that's a very important point. Right. And Dr. Cur- I'm, I mean, I'm curious to the degree that it makes sense to share what kind of pushback, maybe your feedback you've gotten in response to the book, being someone who is, you know, shoulder to shoulder with people that maybe some are feeling critiqued by it, so to speak, if that's fair to say. Maybe that's not the intention, but maybe it's come across that way. Yeah. What, what, when I wrote the book, I realized that I was definitely going to be um, probably in a different place than some people on this issue mm-hmm. and that I was going to get pushback. And um, I, I certainly have gotten pushback. Most of it's been personal and private. So people just express mm-hmm. disagreement or, or thoughts about it. I, I haven't received yet a significant amount of public pushback, although the book's only been out a few months, so we'll mm-hmm. see. Um, I think there's an inherent defensiveness that people in ministry have and, and let me say that I understand it. I mean, the church yeah. can take it on the chin in our modern culture, and there's a lot of people who are out to critique it, and a lot of the critiques are unjust. And so people who are ministry in ministry feel like they're getting pounded on every day, and then you have a book like this come out. I can see how the initial reaction could be, oh, great, yet another you know, you know, anti-church book or something like that. And so on one level, I, I get that. But 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 then I want to make sure that I, I challenge that perception that, look, our, our job as the church is not to sort of prop up our own, own image and to always be defensive. We need to look at our uh, the reality of our, our, our problems and our blind spots. Um, and when the prophets came to Israel, the prophets didn't come to Israel saying, yeah, the world out there is so awful, isn't it? No, the prophets often went to Israel and said, you've got issues, <laughs> mm-hmm. Israel, that you need to repent of. And so it always starts with the people of God. And I think we need to remember that in, when it comes to the issue of spiritual abuse. Yeah, absolutely. And your tone in the book is just spot on. I don't think it comes across like you're attacking anyone. It's, hey, I'm I'm in this too. And this is something that we need to take a look at. We're all a That's part good. of the body. And so we want to be holding one another accountable in, in love. And we sometimes have to make tough decisions in order to keep people safe. And so, yeah, I think your tone is great. As far as this idea that it's not really in the Bible... I've heard that myself, and I, I have a hard time responding to it with not without coming across a bit sarcastic because I, I do want to say, like, have you read it? <laughs> have you read the mm-hmm. Bible? But I do understand, like you said, that actual term is new. The actual term is not in Scripture, but so many examples throughout the Old Testament and the New. I did an independent study, I think it was last fall, with a professor at Denver Seminary, and the assignment that I was able to craft was to go through the major and minor prophets And the first step was to create a list of everything that was said to leadership. And uh, there wasn't really good to be found. Good things were not being said to leadership. And these were leaders of Israel, you know, so basically spiritual leaders. There's a component of that at least, you know, whatever role they're in, let alone if they're directly a priest, for example. So when we think about the authority that these people had and the influence that they had, I mean, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. It's tragic. 
Yeah, and one could do the same thing with the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. Um, so when Jesus comes on the scene, he has a lot to say about the current spiritual leadership of Israel, and it's largely it's largely negative. You know, if you read it, you're like, wow, you know, he's he really is concerned and upset about the current state of leadership and is and warns mm-hmm. his listeners about them and about how not to be like them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that that, that that critiquing bad leadership is is new or has no precedent is just simply not the case. Now, there's lots of things that Jesus critiqued the leaders for in his day that are different than the topic we're discussing here. Fair enough. But mm-hmm. he did he did bring up authoritarian, domineering leaders, too, um, among the many things he was concerned about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In light of the common responses to cries of abuse that are in favor of the abuser, basically this idea of blaming the victim and protecting the perpetrator, how would you recommend that the abused proceed? Do you have any encouragement or steps maybe that they should consider taking if they're thinking about coming forward? Oh, yeah, this is a, this is actually a very interesting question because most of the questions I get on this are how should churches proceed? when there's accusations of abuse. And I ex- actually talk quite a bit about that in my book. But you 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 ask an interesting parallel question, which is, what would you say to the actual person who's been abused? What, what, you know, what, what advice would you give them? And uh, this, is, this is where things get complicated because I wish I could tell them that trust the system <laughs> and the system always works. Um, I think we know that, that it doesn't always work, sadly. But I think you've got to start there. Um, and so I do think that if someone's a victim of abuse, they need to go to the proper uh, people who are the next step and do pray that God would use the proper channels to bring justice and accountability. Now, you know, that means, you know, probably going to some sort of leadership body that 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 is overseeing the individual that did the abuse and saying, hey, this is what happened to me. And I need to bring it forward because I want to uh, point this out and hopefully see it corrected. Um, I will say, though, that what I would also say to the person who does that, that they've got to be wa- eyes wide open about what what process they're starting. Mm-hmm. That is a very long, grueling, painful, difficult path for most people. And I'm not saying, therefore, don't come forward. I, that, right. It's not a statement about whether you should or shouldn't come forward. I'm just saying you need to go forward aware that you're, you, this is not going to be a quick thing. And it's not going to be a painless thing. And that's a sobering place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate one of the, um, where was it? I think it was in, I think it was in chapter seven. I think it's in the last chapter where it's more focused at church leadership, like you Mm -hmm. said, but of course, within that there were tips I would say for the actual abused. And one of the examples you gave was seeking out Christian counsel outside of the church itself as in that specific church building and body. So someone external that hopefully is going to be unbiased and be able to provide a different form of support. Mm -hmm. And I very much appreciate that suggestion because whatever process they ultimately choose to go through or not in terms of within that church itself, you know, as far as taking it to leadership and whatnot, however far they decide to take that, they're still going to be on their own journey of, gosh, I mean, we see it every day here at be emboldened. And it, it, it gets real, as you know, Dr. Kruger, like, okay, who's God ultimately? And where was God in that? And how did he allow this to happen? And people can walk away from the faith ultimately, as we know. And so this is very, it's very serious. And it's really important um, that the person find good support who is going to have 
an understanding of their context and be able to walk alongside them through this while holding to the faith yet not being pushy and understanding there are periods of time where people have to step away from community because it's just too darn unsafe for them to stay in it for a while. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as I said in the introduction of my book, I I didn't write the book directly for those who mm. were victims of abuse. Um, I was more writing the book for churches so you, they could prevent it and stop it. Mm. But you're right. I, I certainly have little places in the book where I hopefully give good advice and tips for those who are in those situations. And I think one of the things that people need to realize, and I hope they're beginning to realize this more and more, is that the, the, the toll that it takes on someone's spiritual life can be really catastrophic. I mean, mm. you know, we, we tend to minimize it as like, uh, you know, just get over it. What's your problem? Toughen up. You know, why does everyone have to be so sensitive kind of thing? And I'm like, well, I think that's just reveals a grand misunderstanding of the way abuse works. Um, you know, in, in years gone by, you know, the church had an idea that, that that you would never use the term abuse unless it's physical and probably if there's blood. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it was only looked at in one category. Now we're realizing that actually some of the biggest damage you can do to someone's spiritual life is not physical at all. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's very emotional and spiritual. And I think that's what we're learning here in this mm-hmm. in this category. Yes. And I would encourage that people who have been victimized, if I may use that word, I know not everyone's a fan. I'm not always a fan either, but for lack of a better word, at least right now, someone who has suffered this form of abuse, the reason I still recommend this book is because I find it to be deeply encouraging that someone who is a pastor is writing to other pastors about something that you've experienced that has likely been minimized. Yeah. You feel like someone's speaking for you. Yeah, I, I would imagine um, someone probably mm-hmm. feels like, OK, someone on on the leadership world understands this mm-hmm. and is trying to call attention to it. And uh, even though the road will be long, hopefully that's encouraging in its own right. Right. Um, that people feel like, OK, maybe someone out there is, is listening and, and, and understands what we've been through. Right. Helping to legitimize what is truly mm-hmm. legitimate and also hopeful that others. I know you're not the only one. You know, I know other pastors who very much care about this and they take it seriously. And so just very encouraging to see more people are paying attention and they want to be a part of a solution. They want to be a part of a change. Yeah. And I'll add this. I mean, you asked me if I've gotten any critiques or negative feedback and I, I have gotten a, a little bit of that. But I, but I also will say on that note that the vast majority of the response has been overwhelmingly positive okay. in a way that I didn't anticipate. Um, mm-hmm. I, I honestly was bracing <laughs> for the for the negative blowback and, and and there's been some but but the vast majority of people have just thanked me like thank you for saying this thank you for mm-hmm. being willing to enter into this discussion and for giving us a tool and i've been really encouraged by that and i th- i think your sh- your listeners should be encouraged by that mm-hmm. there's yeah. there's a lot of people out there that that are coming to to be aware of the issue and i think i think that there's good momentum i think mm-hmm. we got a long way to go but mm-hmm. there's still good good momentum we can be thankful for yes yeah i agree I hear a lot of confusion from people that come to BE about justice and mercy or grace when it comes to this area of spiritual abuse. So they've been told things like just forgive and leave the justice to God. And so those kinds of sentiments seem to completely let the abuser off of the hook in their minds. And I'm wondering, would you mind sharing what you see as the biblical truth in all of this? Yeah, I mean, if you talk to anybody who's who's been abused in the church, it is true that a lot of them get told, "Look, your job's just to forgive and move mm-hmm. on, uh, stop being so, you know, um, hard-hearted um, and and judgmental. Everybody's a sinner. You've got, you know, you've been forgiven, so you just need to forgive back." Um, 
now there's a there's a nugget of truth there, I suppose, in the sense that we're all sinners, yes, uh, and certainly uh, we're called to forgive even our enemies. But I think it misses major other biblical categories. You know, only biblical category is not forgiveness. Uh, there's also the biblical category of justice. Um, there's also the biblical category of accountability, particularly for spiritual leaders. Um, and so the, the problem for the person who's been abused isn't just that they want personal justice, but they also are caring about that same leader being in, in, in his position where he can go and abuse other people. So yeah. the idea that you just move on, well, what about all the other people he's hurt or will hurt? Uh, and I think it misses those things. And then the other thing it does is it confuses uh, forgiveness with, re- with, with, with reconciliation and in a way that I think is confusing to people. Yes, you can forgive someone even if they never repent. Um, you can forgive someone even if they never acknowledge what they've done. But the only way you really uh, have move, move on and have healing is if you can have reconciliation. A reconciliation only happens with repentance and acknowledgement of sin. And so unless that abusive leader repents and acknowledges their sin, then you, you, you have a, a perpetual wound there that, 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 that just is, is, has to be acknowledged. Uh, and it's not the fault of the victim to, 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 to just get over it. It's not their fault the wound is there. The wound is there because they've had someone abuse them that's never repented. And even though they can be forgiven, just simply saying and beginning the process of forgiveness does not bring healing overnight. And so it's just a long road. And so people who talk that way, honestly, have not read much on abuse probably, or probably have never actually sat across the table from someone who's been abused and heard their story. Because if you do, then you're going to have a very different perspective. Oh, I love the way you put that. It is so true that the wound stays. And I was meeting with some people just this past weekend, and they were sharing about how they're seeking reconciliation. They want that. And it's they're at an impasse because it's one-sided. The other side isn't willing to say that they've done anything wrong. And the other side has done many things deeply, deeply wrong. And so they're feeling like, for example, I was asked, you know, can I go take communion because I'm not I'm not right with my brothers and sisters. It's like, yes, you can go take communion because you have done what you can do. You've done what's in your power and ability to do. You can't do what they now need to do. And so, yes, you're okay to to go and partake in communion with your brothers and your sisters. And so, it's just it's from that wounding. You know, it's it's so painful and it's so uncomfortable and I think we can misinterpret that as I haven't done something yet that I'm supposed yeah. to do. And yeah, that the tr- the tragic truth at the same time is we aren't necessarily going to be able to fix it on our own. Yeah, I have a section in the book where I talk about um, some some of the misguided concepts around reconciliation in the church mm-hmm. today. And there's you know we have more reconciliation ministries than ever, um, and more peacemaking ministries than ever. And on mm-hmm. one level, I suppose you could say that's a good thing. On another level, though, I think it, it, people can get rushed into a reconciliation process that can be misguided and, and, and not not helpful, particularly if the abusive leader is not repentant. If the abusive mm-hmm. leader is not repentant, what what is the purpose of putting them in the same room with the victims? What what is going to mm-hmm. happen? Well, the, the the abusive leader will will basically say I didn't do anything wrong. And then it forces the victims to try to prove their case. And then he says, no, you're blown out of proportion. And the whole thing gets reopened again. You know, you you, you cannot reconcile with an unrepentant person. And so it's really the church's job to hold these pastors accountable. And what's sad is when the church doesn't hold an abusive pastor accountable, but still insists on reconciling them with the victims, then, mm-hmm. wow, there's something really missing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think is, is some, that those are some of the things I tried to address in the book. Yes. And with that, would you mind briefly going over Matthew 18 and what, what you would share with people about that? Because again, 
I've heard this from people too, is I didn't follow Matthew 18. So it's almost like they think now they have this, they went about the process wrong. And so the consequences are now on them because they didn't handle the abuse the way they should have. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, Matthew 18, obviously is a very important text for how we handle conflict in the church. What I remind people though, is it's not the only text that talks about conflict in the church. Mm -hmm. It's not a, it's not a, a, an exhaustive text about uh, conflict in the church. It's not a catch-all. Um, it's it, it lays out very helpful principles for what I would argue are sort of normal uh, personal offenses between people that you mm-hmm. want to see reconciled. Um, but there's there's a number of ways it's been misused um, in cases of abuse. Um, you know, one of the ways it's been misused is if a person doesn't follow Matthew 18, they treat it almost like it's Miranda rights. You know, you now you can't be charged with a crime because someone didn't follow the right procedure. Um, should people follow Matthew 18 when it does apply? Of course they should, because it's it's a biblical right. passage. But but even if they mistakenly didn't follow Matthew 18 and didn't follow proper process, do you do you then ignore the abuse? That's just you know it's not it's not the Miranda rights. It's, mm-hmm. it's you 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 can address both problems. Is what I tell people, you can address the abuse and remind mm-hmm. the person that Matthew 18 is there for a reason. The other thing I say about Matthew 18 is that you know there there are limitations to it in terms of criminal behavior. And even in terms, of, I think of abuse. You know, if someone uh, is abused, let's say sexually by their pastor, um, the idea that you should go back in a room with that pastor one on one, and and follow the the, the Matthew eighteen uh, thing is, I think, a misunderstanding in, uh, of of the whole scenario. Um, you know, if I was a husband and my wife was sexually abused by a pastor, I would not let my wife go back into a room right. alone with the person who sexually abused her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to realize that there's, there's, there's boundaries and in, in, in common sense limitations to this. And I think that that needs more attention in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I remember in the book, I'm not recalling exactly which passage it was. I don't know if you will recall offhand or not, but it was a comparison to, wasn't it just a couple of chapters later? Or then is there a parable used where... Yeah, yeah, it's in the same chapter, actually, uh, of Matthew 18, where it's the parable of the unmerciful servant uh, who doesn't forgive uh, the debt that that, that people owe him. And when people see him behave that way, they don't go confront him directly. They go to the master uh, and say, hey, your your servant here is is mistreating people. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. and the reason they can do that is because Matthew 18 only applies to the person who's been offended it doesn't mean you can't ever point out someone's sin uh, in general without mm-hmm. going to them first. If I watch a pastor abuse someone else uh, on church staff, I can go to the elders directly without even going to the pastor mm-hmm. and say, hey, he's mistreating staff. And that is not a violation of Matthew 18. And, and I think that's an important qualification, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, just a really important uh, indication that we have to take scripture as a whole, right? You know, we don't Mm want to isolate a passage and say, this is the be all end all. I was just having a conversation recently with someone about uh, kind of the idea of is is God a bully? And we see some things in the Old Testament where it's, oh, they, they killed everyone, but then two minutes later, they're intermarrying. So obviously they didn't kill everyone, you know, so we've got to keep reading. We have to piece these things together. And if we just take one one passage and we isolate it, we're going to miss miss the big picture and do things like having sexually abused people meeting one-on-one with their abusers, which to those of you who are watching and listening, where maybe you're like, oh my gosh, does that actually happen? It does. Tragically, oh my gosh, it does yes. Happen. The, in yeah. the Bill Hybels case, I've mentioned this in the book, in the Bill Hybels case, the women... That, that he uh, sexually mistreated um, were were chided for not going directly to him mm-hmm. to follow Matthew 18. 
Um, and, and that's an example of how churches do do this. Um, cause I think that it's misunderstand Matthew 18 and, and, um, and part of that is because no one's taken the time to really explore the implications of abuse on Matthew 18 and other types of scenarios, um, that I think, you know, we, we need to evaluate. And, and like I said, the passage isn't trying to solve every problem the church ever comes across. Right. Right. In regards to leaders who have sound theology but poor character, I've heard the directive to spit out the bones and take the good from the bad. What have you found to be the biblical response for someone who is under this kind of authority? Yeah, so if you have a person who has good theology and bad character and they're in leadership, then what a person needs to do is go back and reread the qualifications for for, for ministerial leadership. And you realize that, that bad character disqualifies them. So the Bible never says, oh, if you have a minister that's got good theology and they've got bad character, well, just just be thankful for the good theology and just ignore the bad character and move on. No, what the Bible says is that if you have a minister who's got good theology and but exhibits bad character, he shouldn't be a minister. Mm-hmm. No, no one's suggesting these people aren't necessarily Christians. They could be struggling Christians. They could be Christians with issues and problems. They could be Christians trying to find their way. So it's not so much about whether they're converted. It's about whether they belong in a position of spiritual leadership. Mm. And the Bible is very clear on the qualifications for leaders. In fact, I point out in the book and others have done so that in places like 1 Timothy 3, where it lays out the qualifications for an elder, there's probably about 12 qualifications there, maybe 13, depends how you count them. But, But only one of them has to do with giftedness and the other 11 or 12 have to do with character. Uh, It's a stunning ratio of about 12 Mm. to one in that single passage. And that tells you at least the message that Paul's trying to get across is that what matters to people in ministry more or what should matter more is not necessarily giftedness or, or, or impressiveness, but, but character is, is, is one of the key hallmarks of, of what makes a person qualified for ministry. It's not the only thing, mm-hmm. but certainly a big thing. And so if, if, if someone is in a church with a person with bad character, then they're, they're, they're under the leadership of somebody who should be disqualified. Mm-hmm. And I don't really hear character talked about a whole lot. Yeah, this is one of the things I think um, I'm I'm taking away from my own book, or uh, the, I guess a better way to say it is the research I did for this book. I'm realizing that I think the church as a whole, and and I'll I'll speak here for seminary since I lead one. Mm-hmm. Seminaries too need to think maybe more full orbed about the way we talk about the qualifications for ministry, because in most contexts the qualifications are almost always doctrinal. Um, you know, you know, and when we examine people, 90% of our time in examining someone's doctrinal and maybe 10% on character or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's reasons for that. One is we care about doctrine and we should. That's, mm-hmm. Those are important right. things. And the other thing is that doctrine is more tangible or objective to evaluate. Character is really hard to evaluate. And so we, we, we just don't know what to do to evaluate it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think we've got to do better. <laughs> we've yeah. got to figure out a way to evaluate character in a, in a way that, that that hopefully can be preventive uh, for some of these things. Yeah. And I also, I struggle to trust that someone with poor character, but sound theology will stick with their sound theology in the long haul. Yeah, fair point. I just, I, I wouldn't trust that. And so I, I issue clients of ours, a caution with it of, Mm-hmm. they'd be more at risk to have pride get get the best of them or, you know, make a decision that maybe isn't totally on the up and up. And I just, yeah, if we don't have good character kind of driving that boat, I don't know that I would trust the theological interpretation and application in the long haul. 
No, that's right. We often talk about how theology uh, or doctrine affects life and behavior, mm -hmm. but we also need to remember that behavior and life and morality affects doctrine. Uh, the, the road goes mm -hmm. both directions. And so, yeah, if you have someone with bad character, then you, you, you might want to wonder about whether their doctrine can be trusted. And I think mm -hmm. the, the number of books in the, in the Bible make that point. If you look at the, uh, particularly in the, in the general epistles corpus, places like Second Peter and First John, uh, there's often a sense that false teachers are also people with, with bad character. The, the, mm -hmm. the two often go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what you brought up about how do you evaluate character? I mean, yeah, it is easier to evaluate some of theology and just ask them some questions. I mean, you can literally send them a questionnaire and just have them fill out the answers. And But someone's character, that, that takes a relationship to really see how the oh, person yeah. responds over time. That is a, diff, a more difficult decision to be making. And so... I'm curious, I, I know you have some thoughts in your book, if you wouldn't mind sharing them, how a church could maybe go about starting to evaluate something like that. Yeah, so I do I do have some basic recommendations in the book to how to make some progress in this area. And by no means do I think my recommendations are sufficient or enough, but at least you could make some progress. I mean, mm -hmm. one one example I bring up in the book is, you know, we we when someone applies for a pastoral job, we have these sort of references we ask for. Well, okay, but let's be honest. Most of the time, the references are the person's two best friends in the world who are mm -hmm. happy to, you know, sing his praises. Um, and we're not suggesting people are lying. We're just suggesting that that's not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that that's enough <laughs> to evaluate someone's character is, I think, really uh, you know, not reasonable. And so I encourage different steps that can be taken. Going back to the person's prior church, interviewing prior staff. I think talking about broken relationships in the past and how they've been mended, whether there's a track record of, of behavior that's ruined relationships in this particular person's life, um, and really trying to dig a little bit deeper. Um, now, the objection I know that comes up there is that, wow, you do that, you're never going to hire anybody. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think, I think what you'll mm -hmm. end up doing is hiring someone with eyes wide open mm -hmm. about what you're getting. And that's a lot better in my mind than the sort of put a guy on a pedestal as if he's nearly perfect. And then you're disillusioned five years later when the whole church implodes. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be better to start off with a more sober assessment of someone so you at least know that, okay, we, we got a fairly fail, uh, fairly uh, accurate and fair picture of, of who, we, who we've got here. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, he's, he's still qualified, hopefully, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's, there's places we want to watch. And I think that's the, the right course of action. Yeah, I loved your suggestion of interviewing people that worked beneath that person. For example, interviewing their, you know, their previous assistant or something like yeah. that. And particularly that talking to team. women uh, mm -hmm. was one of the key points because, yes. you know, you just talk to his fellow buddies and, you know, right. I'm not saying those aren't helpful points, but mm -hmm. men and women read things very differently. You know, I don't know why this is such a surprise to people. So you need to get a fair assessment of this person mm -hmm. from a, from a variety of different types of people. Yeah. And I think what you're speaking to, to put it in terms that I use sometimes would be, we all have a predisposition maybe is fair to say to cognitive dissonance confirmation bias these kind of things that that we tend to do where we are more likely as humans to weigh something that is in agreement with what we already believe more heavily than something that's in disagreement so we just are more aware that we might do that and so we want to be attuned to it so that hopefully we minimize that as much as possible and so if we're going and we're talking to someone's buddy 
they're not, they're not intentionally lying or covering up or they're just, you know, maybe they see their buddy through rose colored glasses because it's their buddy. And so they might speak more to one aspect versus another aspect. And so I think just being realistic about this, and I appreciate how you're saying it is not that anyone's trying to intentionally pull the wool over somebody's eyes. It's just, they're maybe tuning in in a different way than somebody else might. And so, yeah, getting a variety of views. And there's different levels of this, right? So Mm -hmm. I would argue as I said, in most cases, a pastor's fellow elders are just unable to see what what's there. And it's not mm-hmm. that they're lying. They're just limited in, in their perspective. Mm-hmm. But we do know of cases where people do lie. <laughs> and we do know bla- cases where people blatantly cover up mm-hmm. known uh, bad behavior. And I think mm-hmm. we all know about the national cases where this happened. And right. we can convince ourselves that we're protecting the church. We can convince ourselves that we're doing the church of service by keeping this under wraps or whatever it happens to be. And, and so I think, you know, you realize that there's ranges of culpability uh, among leadership bodies. Uh, some are culpable out of ignorance. Some are culpable uh, in a more direct way out of actually covering up bad behavior. And and those are really sad, tragic cases. And the people who do that, they're going to have to, they'll, they'll be accountable themselves someday because God, God holds leaders responsible when they don't, when they turn a blind eye to, to, to abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something else that comes up with our clients is they feel like, well, if I forgive this person, then, you know, not that they think if they forgive, it means God's going to forgive, but they're like, is there just grace for this person? Like they just, they're just going to get off scot-free for what they've done because there is a sense of desiring justice at the end of all of this, that there's going to be that accountability. And they're not, I meet with lovely people who they're like, we're not saying we want eternal damnation. We're just saying like, we want to know that something's going to be done. Um, And it's going to be a hindrance to them forgiving and being able to. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's just really painful for people and hard. Um, And this is where a lot of abuse victims are faced with forgiving someone in the midst of no justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really difficult to do. Um, you know, Tim Keller's got a new book out on forgiveness. I, I haven't read it, but I know Tim and I'm, I'm, I'm very confident it's an excellent book. And from what I've heard too, and I know that some of the excerpts I've seen, he talks about this, that sometimes you just have to admit that, yeah, you are, you are taking on um, a burden when you forgive somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one confusion that can that one confusing point that can often happen is some people think that if I forgive this person that they shouldn't be held accountable. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a there's justice and forgiveness are not at war with each other. Mm-hmm. A person can be forgiven by you, but also uh, removed from their office by the church and disciplined for their behavior. The two are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the ultimate desire, right? To be mm-hmm. able to forgive someone and see them get justice mm-hmm. um, and accountability. But the reality is for many victims, you just, you're never going to see justice and accountability this in your lifetime. Right. Uh, but, but I think we're still obligated to forgive. And I think we do trust at that point to God that he will bring accountability someday for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we leave it in his hands. But by saying we leave it in his hands, that doesn't mean we don't work toward, or at least still long for earthly justice. Mm-hmm. Earthly justice is a legitimate category. And, um, and, I, and in too many cases, victims are, 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 are critiqued by churches for wanting earthly justice. And I think that's that's unfortunate because there's nothing wrong with wanting earthly justice. Mm-hmm. I think we we have it built into us by virtue of being made in God's image. And I think the Bible affirms that category. Yes. And so whenever we can, I mean, of course, we have the whole justice system. So there's times where people, there is some form of justice served, although is it 
really equivalent? Not necessarily. I mean, someone loses a, a family member to murder. I mean, that person being in prison is not going to make it better. No. But it's, you know, it's it's what can be done on this side <laughs> of eternity. And so sometimes it's just, gosh, yeah, kind of acceptance, I think, comes into play for those of us who have also been harmed. Acceptance of this is what I can do and this is my part. This is my role. Um, and then I, I rebuild and I move forward. And yes, I'm going to entrust to God. Mm-hmm. And I also... And I, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I had thought originally about putting a whole chapter in my book on forgiveness mm-hmm. and on that. But then I realized I was losing my, my mm-hmm. goal. My goal wasn't to address right. the victims. It was addressing the institutions and the churches and the leaders. Right. And so um, I, I, I didn't write that chapter, obviously, for that reason. But I think it's still a really important concept to address for those who've been mm-hmm. victims of abuse. And this is why I recommend Tim's book. On mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. And I think kind of going more to the leadership side of it for a second, I still remain hopeful, even in the stories of people that, you know, are clients of being emboldened, that they people do change and God still moves, you know, he's alive and active. And so I don't count it as done until it's done. You know, I'm like, someone could come back up until the time that I die or that person is no longer here. Something could change. And so as long as it's safe to do so, you know, when I say that, because I think it's an important qualifier, I'm depending on the kind of abuse and what's happened, as long as it's safe to do so, my, my door remains cracked open for someone to come and knock and say, hey, you know, I, I do realize this now and I do want to apologize and I do want to reconcile. And I'm like, that would be the most amazing gift. Oh and my so gosh, in, my yeah. own, in my own journey, as I've learned and processed through and have different perspectives looking back on different situations I've been in, when I've recognized, gosh, you know, hindsight 2020, I guess, like I didn't know that at the time, but I would do that very differently now. If I can reach out to that person and safely do so, I do. You know, I've written mm-hmm. letters. I've, I'm like, if I can offer that to somebody... I want to offer that to someone. They may never talk to me. They may never, but I want to give that to them because that can be so healing to hear, wow, this person gets it now and they apologized because I was under the influence of indoctrination that was completely wrong. And so there's interactions I had with people that I absolutely wouldn't stand by. They weren't actually Christian. I was told they were Christian, but they weren't Christian in reality. So now that I can see that, I want to correct it wherever I can. Again, with safety in mind, there's some people where it would be safe to reach out to for different reasons. But I think when we can offer that, and of course, when we can receive it, it's just such, it's such a gift. Yeah. Sometimes I wish I could communicate to the, to the abusive leader out there that do you realize how powerful it would be if you would admit what you did and confess it and go back Mm -hmm. and, and genuinely apologize yeah. to the people you've hurt, the, the, the type of healing, the type of reconciliation, the type of mm-hmm. um, blessing that would be, would be incalculable. It would be you, yeah. you know, just like the, it's hard to assess the damage that's done through spiritual mm-hmm. abuse. It's equally hard to imagine the the the, the healing that can happen through real repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, in most spiritual abuse cases, that repentance just never comes because of right. the type of people that typically are spiritual abusers or, t- or the type right. of people that that often are, are, are unable and unwilling to acknowledge they ever really do anything meaningfully wrong. And so mm-hmm. you, you, and sadly, true cases of repentance and reconciliation are rare. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. And I, I certainly, we, we always hold out hope for the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit. Mm-hmm. But, but statistically speaking, mm-hmm. um, most, most victims never reconcile with their abusers. Yes. Yes. And I have been 
very fortunate over the past year. I'm trying to think. I think it's three. I think I've had three. Now this is, I'm talking really like tick all the boxes, cult situations is what I'm about to reference. So not mainstream church um, spiritual abuse, but three previous cult leaders in different groups who have left and they've stepped out of leadership and they've recognized this is not actually Christianity and my behavior has been horrible, not good character, not good treatment of anyone, plus the, you know, messed up doctrine to go along with it. So all of it, but they've stepped out. And what I, what I have found to be their biggest sticking point, which breaks my heart in a way, is they struggle to accept that they can be forgiven. They are, Mm. they're beating themselves up so heavily for the previous role that they played. And now what I see in that is true repentance. I was about to say, that's a sign of true repentance. Actually, Yes. The the idea that that my sin was so big that I'm wondering if I can be forgiven for it is exactly the posture of a truly repentant person rather than going back and saying, well, I didn't really hurt you that badly. And, you know, you should be able to forgive me pretty easily because it was a really small thing. Yeah, that's not true repentance. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's encouraging. It is. It's incredible. And yet also wanting them to know that Christ is sufficient. And so make the amends, you know, do what you can and also know that forgiveness is available to you. So yeah, it's, it's incredible to see. It is very encouraging to see. So we were speaking about authority briefly, and I want to go back to that for a second. I offer, I often hear references to the authority of leaders and the resulting requirement for congregants to respond with full loyalty and obedience. How does the fullness of scripture weigh these passages that are being referenced? And I want to rattle those off for anyone who's following along and maybe wants to pull these up. But the ones I most often hear are 1 Samuel 24, 6, 1 Samuel 26, 11, Romans 13, 1 to 2, and Hebrews 13, 17. Yeah, so um, (laughs) one of the things that typically happens in situations of spiritual abuse is those in authority like to remind people of their authority. Um, and they like to, re, you know, you know, tell their congregation, hey, you know, you should submit to me. I'm your boss. I'm your leader. And, and, and there, there's truth there. Um, God does put people in positions of authority and he does ask his his people to submit uh, to uh, the authority in a number of, of places. Um, and we see this in terms of submission to government, submission to church leaders and so on. But the fuller picture of scripture gives a lot of qualifications to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that uh, someone in spiritual authority is beyond critique or accountability. It's simply not true. We see God hold leaders accountable, and Israel's prophets often critique them for their wayward ways all the time. So the idea that, well, because I'm in a position of authority that you have to do whatever I tell you um, in some sort of autocratic way is just not borne out in Scripture. Moreover, the Scriptures also make it clear that that someone in a position of spiritual authority ought not to be obeyed if they ask you to sin or ask you to do things that are wrong or teach you wrong things. And then you're you're actually obligated to not obey them (laughs) at that point. So we just need to look at the bigger picture of that. Um, And anybody who cites those passages who's actually in leadership makes, you know, that makes me always makes me nervous. I'm thinking, you know, you know, the, the sort of power posturing that that implies um, that's not the attitude of God's leaders, you know, um, Yes, there's real authority there, but it's to be wielded humbly and gently. And um, and by pulling those passages out like a club to hit people with can be uh, very disconcerting. I agree. I heard about a parachurch organization where a talk, including these passages, was a part of the onboarding process. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, I'm that's like unhealthy. right there. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, now, now, granted, you know, I, I suppose one could make the point that, well, you know, people who are always undermining the leaders over them and undercutting them and speaking bad about them, that's a problem too. And yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's a place where that needs mm-hmm. to be addressed. Um, but, uh, but, but, but that doesn't mean that that leaders are, are in some sort of you know untouchable position um, of authority. And I think that's that's when things get really scary. You give someone absolute authority, they're going to be in, they're going to hurt others and hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to encourage people that we have a sense of accountability still for ourselves. So we want to make sure that we're thinking that we're reading our Bibles, that we're critically thinking, that we're, you know, and I'm not saying someone like myself where I was raised in something indoctrinated. And I mean, there's qualifiers here. This gets more nuanced, but kind of just speaking broader, we don't come under leadership and then just do everything that they say and assume, well, the leader's fully accountable. So I can, I'm just going to do what they say and none of that will fall on me. I'm like, well, I'm still, I still have my own relationship with Christ. And so I want to make sure that I'm comparing the scripture the best that I'm able and that I'm, you know, seeking wise counsel and hopefully maybe even having some counsel outside of that church body can be, can be wise um, to do. And what can I do on my own to try to make sure that I am walking out my Christian faith, you know, as in closely as aligned to scriptures as I'm able to do. No, I guess exactly right. I mean, you know, when we talk about, you know, submitting to your church leaders, it never means that you submit with some sort of blind loyalty where you're just sort of a robot that does mm-hmm. whatever is you're told without thinking about it. Um, we're always called to be accountable for our own actions and our own uh, own steps. So we, 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 we test everything by God's word. Mm-hmm. And that's an important thing that the Bereans taught us in Acts. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How would you describe biblical shepherding as in the aspects of leadership aside from the teaching and preaching parts? Like what should people look for? Yeah, so obviously uh, Christ and scriptures in general use the term shepherd and the, the category of shepherd to describe what God's leaders should be. And, mm-hmm. and, and shepherds do lots of things, right? Um, and I think one of the dangers to look out for was when someone conceives of their shepherding as primarily centered around discipline and correction. Um, I, I, I had a pastor say to me once that, um, the, that he saw the main point of his ministry to point out people's sins. Um, and I thought to myself, mm-hmm. wow, that, that's, that's not the main point of your ministry. Mm-hmm. Is there a time when you confront people over their sins? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a time to correct and discipline? Sure. Mm-hmm. The idea that that's the main thing, I think, is going to lead you down some dangerous pathways. Mm-hmm. So shepherds have a multidimensional role. They're designed to uh, provide. They're designed to protect. They're, they're, they're designed to encourage um, and yes, they're designed to correct when necessary, mm-hmm. but it's a full or thing. And so I think one of the things we want to be looking for in shepherds of our church is that, are, do they understand that? Is that, are they really doing the other things? Are they providing? Are they protecting? Are they encouraging? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you think what a real shepherd does with a sheep, he's not always kicking the sheep and, and, and swatting the sheep with his staff. Lots of times he's mm-hmm. trying to feed the sheep and guard the sheep and protect the sheep from danger and love the sheep. Uh, and so this is, uh, I think, a good image for the, the type of behavior a shepherd should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really drawing a comparison, a point between all of these issues we've been talking about. And okay, here's, every again, everyone listening and watching, here's what you do want to look for. So you're wanting to look for someone who is caring for you and who is wanting... I, I, 
I'm wondering what other language you would use here. I tend to use the language of coming alongside someone. But I also understand that, especially depending on the size of the congregation, this might have to look very different. One person cannot do it all. Two people can't do it all. You know, it depends on the size and and what's going on and the, you know, the, the leadership structure and all these different components, I think, as to what's also going to be reasonable for the leader to do. And so I'm wondering, do you have any further thoughts on what people would be looking for? Say they're in a church that's larger, as an example, and it's yeah. like, well, you might have this pastor who does this and this one who do, does this versus one that's really small. And I've been in those small ones too, where I'm like, well, this poor guy can't do everything. It's just unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's very complicated because some, some small churches, because they're small, can shepherd better because there's less people. At the same time, small churches have less staff, mm-hmm. so they have less resources. So it, small churches with big church, I, I know small churches with bad shepherding, I know big churches with good shepherding yeah. um, and vice versa. And so, you know what you're looking for is certainly uh, a church that's that sees itself as more simp- more than simply a a, 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 a conduit for good teaching. Mm-hmm. I care a lot about good teaching. I'm mm-hmm. you know here at the seminary that's a lot of what right. we focus on, and, and I believe in it very much. But I see a lot of churches where it seems like the only point is that you you get taught the sermon, and there's nothing really else mm-hmm. there for you. Um, and I think that that's evidence of an unhealthy shepherding situation. You know, also on the on the negative criteria side, one one warning sign to look out for in a, in a church in terms of shepherding, I think a sign that things are not right is if people are afraid of their shepherds. Mm-hmm. Um, Deep seated fear of one's pastor, pastors, or elders is is an unhealthy uh, scenario. And a lot of abusive churches, you you find out later that people really were afraid mm-hmm. of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if there's that if that vibe is in the church, wow, you, you need to be very careful. Yes, I oftentimes hear people talk about love bombing when they walk into the church, but there can also be the opposite. You can feel tension. Oh yeah, and there, and and lots of times abusive leaders will do both. Mm-hmm. They'll uh, they'll 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 give you the the overdose of affection at one point, and then a very heavy handed treatment at another, and it's very analogous to abusive parents. Um, if you if you're, you're doing a study on child abuse, you know, abusive parents actually are, are fire and ice. Sometimes they mm-hmm. love their kids and hold them on their lap and mm-hmm. hug and kiss them. And other times they, they, they literally beat them. Yes. And so it's, <laughs> you know, the, usually it's the, the, the same things are true in, in, in a single abusive leader. They can be both uh, very affable and kind and at the same time, very harsh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even more confusing and it leaves people with that after of wondering, gosh, how could I trust this person? But also, but, but there was this and there was this and there was this and they were mm-hmm. encouraging and they felt trustworthy. And then all of a sudden, yeah, I'm getting slapped again. And so, yeah, it's it's a more confusing situation. It's not as clearly black or white for people until they start to kind of, you know, break that down and, and tease mm-hmm. it out a bit. And then they start to see, yeah, it may have been a tactic. So thank you so much, Dr. Kruger, for being here. Again, I very much appreciate your time. And for anyone who has not read this book, it is an excellent resource. I know, again, that it was written for people in leadership. And I very much appreciate it from that perspective as well. But I think it is equally helpful. I think it equally serves those who have been abused, not only because of the encouragement and the lessons in there for people who are in leadership, but also there's so much for those who have been abused to glean from it too. So I'd recommend it across the board. Thanks, Naomi. Good chatting with you. Absolutely. Absolutely.